Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. My guest today is E. Patrick Johnson, author of Sweet Tea. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So Sweet Tea is a play that's based on interviews you did with a number of gay black men from the South. And this has now been a monograph, a documentary, a stage play, and now a published script. What keeps bringing you back to these stories? Well, it is the gift that keeps on giving. Um, I think that it's the stories themselves lend uh, themselves to different artistic forms. Um, When I began collecting these oral histories uh, more than now 15 years ago, I never imagined that they would exist beyond a book. And then As I started conducting more and more of the interviews and met such wonderful storytellers and such characters, pun intended, I came to the conclusion that the stories needed to live beyond uh, a traditional book. Mm -hmm. And and because I am uh, a performance scholar and a performer, I decided to try to uh, bring them to life in a different form. And so initially, the, uh, the thought was to just have a, do a stage reading, which I, I did create, uh, which I toured for a very long time to college campuses and around, where it was, it was sort of kind of, uh, I, I liken it to the vagina monologues, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where I you know sat on a stool, had a music stand, had the script there, and I, I sort of invoked the voice of the, the men that I interviewed. And then uh, after uh, a few years, um, people kept saying to me, you know, this should be a full production. And I was approached by uh, then uh, she was the director of a uh, center at Columbia College here in Chicago. Her name is Jane Sachs. Uh, She said, I want to produce this. Uh, It was her first time (laughs) being a a producer. And so she uh, partnered with About Face Theater which is the first LGBTQ theater here in Chicago, uh, which was then um, really uh, doing well here in Chicago. And uh, they agreed. And that's how it became a a stage play, still a one-person show, but uh, a fully actualized production. And that was actually my first time doing professional theater. Uh, all of my other performance experience had been kind of in performance art, solo performance, but not professional theater, which was a whole other different experience to have a team of people weighing in on the script and uh, working on uh, 
set and light design and costume and you know sort of the whole uh, production and uh, the play went through many iterations <laughs> as plays do um, so it, it it premiered here in Chicago uh, in 2010 and then traveled to Austin, Texas, where there was a, yet another director uh, and some revision. Then it traveled to uh, Signature Theater in Arlington, where there was yet another director uh, and more revision. And then it traveled to Durham, North Carolina, where there was yet another director and another iteration. And it was that final, that fourth iteration uh, is what the the current play script is. Mm -hmm. One of the most memorable characters is Countess Vivian. Mm -hmm. um, and Countess Vivian suggests that your real motivation in recording these stories is to tell your own story. Do you think yeah. Countess Vivian has a, has a point there? <laughs> well, I think subconsciously uh, that was the motivation, even though I, at the time, you know, wasn't willing to, to recognize that, but over the years of performing the stories and without telling my own story, because in that in that initial stage, reading, uh, it was only the stories of the men. My story wasn't included. It wasn't until we began to talk about uh, a fully actualized theatrical production that there was a discussion about where is E. Patrick Johnson in these stories? Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you that I went kicking and screaming. <laughs> I did not, <laughs> I did not want to talk about myself. I did not want to include my story, but the producers and, and everyone else on the team uh, convinced me that one of the things that was most interesting about this project was actually my relationship to these men. Mm -hmm. And so it was only fitting that I include my story because I am Black, I am gay, I'm from the South, uh, and I, I collected the stories. What it didn't prepare me for was the kind of reckoning with my own history, mm. uh, a confrontation with the self, as it were, um, things that I, had, I hadn't resolved in my own life, in terms of my relationship to my family, my relationship with my hometown, which has celebrated me, uh, my relationship with partners in the past. And what happened in the process of sharing my own story is I actually came to a better appreciation of what I had asked of these men. Mm. Uh, and because they had, they had shared the most intimate details of their lives with me and I hadn't done the same. And so, um, Countess is right. <laughs> uh, even if I didn't know it at the beginning. Mm -hmm. was, was there a moment where you were li listening back to the interview with, with Countess Vivian and, and thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> he's, he's absolutely right. Um, that is what I was doing. Did, did, was there a sort of epiphany moment? Well, no, I, 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 not, not in, in terms of the interview with 
council because that that line that Countess has in the play uh, is actually uh, me attributing it to the character. It mm, wasn't something mm-hmm. that he actually said to me. Oh, I see. I see. Um, but again, I think subconsciously, uh, I I knew all along that it was th- that interviewing these men was giving me the courage to confront my own past. But it was a journey. Uh, mm-hmm. To get there, and that part of that journey was the listening to these men's stories. The other part was actually embodying them, putting their stories in my own body. Mm. Uh, because many of the stories that were shared with me are very dissimilar to my own. You know, I did not have um, a situation where I was, you know, kicked out of my home for being gay or really ostracized in the church for being gay uh, or some of the other extraordinary um, experiences that these, that these men had. Um, But I was not at the time as open about my sexuality uh, as some of them were, even though they were living in circumstances and in contexts that were, were much more difficult than my own. And the irony also being that, you know, at the time of these interviews, I was a professor already in the academy, which, you know, pretty liberal space, mm-hmm. and also not living in the South. And yet, I still had some, I wouldn't call it trepidation, but some some reservations about being open about my sexuality, particularly in my hometown. Mm-hmm. And I think the courage that these men demonstrated through their own life experiences and the stories about those experiences did give me the courage to stand inside my own truth uh, and not really um, be as concerned about what my hometown thought about me. But all of that, of course, culminates in that moment um, when my hometown celebrates me for being the first African-American to receive a PhD uh, from Hickory and not acknowledging my gayness and me not acknowledging my gayness is like this open secret. Mm -hmm. And looking back on that, I felt nothing but uh, shame. Mm. Uh, because I wasn't standing true to who I was and am. Yeah, this is the way you describe your your hometown is so interesting to me because I feel like oftentimes in kind of media portrayals of what it's like to grow up gay in the South, you know, the solution is you leave or, you know, maybe you move to Atlanta or Miami or, you know, one of the big cities, but, but, but basically it is a, it's a sort of exodus narrative, right? Um, but your, your small town and, and the, the towns and cities that many of these men came from had an ambiguous relationship to these, to these people, to you and, and to the people that you talk to where they felt in some ways supported and in some ways ostracized. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that experience, your experience and the experience of the men you interviewed of, of feeling like this is my home and yet they don't accept a hundred percent of me in this place? Yes. It's, 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 
interesting conundrum. Um, it, it can feel schizophrenic uh, at times, but uh, it's, very fam- it's a very familiar experience. You know, mm-hmm. a number of these men with whom I spoke talk about how their sexuality is just one component of who they are in the context of their community and their families. Uh, one very crass um, example that I remember really clearly was someone um, who's living in Georgia in a very small town in Georgia. I think it was Valdosta or America's one of a, a really small town in um, Southwest Georgia who was very flamboyant. Uh, there was no mistaking uh, mm-hmm. about his, his sexuality. Um, and no one really ostracized him that much and, and, or, or in his family. And when I asked him about that, he said, well, this has to be off the record, so it's not in the book. But he said to me that my mother told me a long time ago, and I, you know, I don't know if we can swear on this podcast. Or sure, not, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> um, he said, you know, my mama told me a long time ago Baby, if you're going to suck a dick, suck a dick, just as long as you're going to bring home a check. <laughs> and I was you know, kind of flabbergasted by that comment. But what that said to me, Andrew, is that this is much more complicated than this just being about sexuality. This is also mm-hmm. about class. Mm. Because for many of these people, it's about what you bring to the table to help the community and the family survive. Mm. So that mother's uh, sort of uh, commentary regarding her son's sexuality was, yeah, I may not approve of the same sex behavior, but that has to be set aside because we need to eat. Mm. Um, the same example I can say for Charles, who is, you know, a, a, a Charles Chas, Chastity uh, in the play, um, who grew up in my hometown, who for years uh, felt that he was transgender and lived as a female Monday through Saturday and did hair uh, at one of the more popular beauty salons, and then on Sunday, came to church as uh, male presenting, singing in the choir, mm-hmm. and no one in my hometown sort of. It it was weird for me coming back, you know, from right. the the Northeast and seeing this trans person function in the hometown that I you know, I knew that I left that was conservative and no one even acknowledged that there was a trans person there. I mean, right, everyone Charles did. was chastity the other six yeah. days of the week. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it, it, it was mind blowing to me, but you know, one of the things that I came to understand is the women who went to Charles for their hair to be done, 
loved Charles, chastity, Chaz. And that was all that was important. Mm. The, the other stuff they may have, uh, you know, talked about or whispered about it in, you know, behind Charles's back, but that didn't keep them from going to Charles to get their hair done. Mm-hmm. And they never kept Charles from participating in community. So that was a common narrative over and over again. So part of it is about sexuality, but it's also about class. It's also about race. These are Black communities um, sort of negotiating uh, racism and which require them to sort of stick together. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of Yes, you might be eccentric. Yes, you might be engaged in behavior that I don't approve of based on religion or so on and so forth. But you're still a part of the family. Mm-hmm. It's that kind of kind of thing. Now, is that ideal for the person for whom people are ambivalent about? No. Uh, does it uh, stave off uh, homophobia, transphobia? Uh, that is hurtful? No. But there's something, there's some kind of um, security in knowing that you, that you have a community mm-hmm. that you can call upon if you, you know, are in trouble or you're falling on hard times. And the other thing is many of those exodus narratives about people who left the small town in the South who went to the North, they don't all have a happy ending either. You know, those folks who go to the big city who experience more violence in some Mm -hmm. cases than folks who are uh, living in small towns where they have the support of the community. Yeah, this this reminds me of one line. I, I might be misquoting it, but I think it's Countess Vivian who says, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't know there were white sissies. You know? <laughs> yes, yes, that's, that is, it that's a great example yeah. because he said they lived on the other side of the track. Uh-huh. And so Countess lived in New Orleans, you know, growing up in the 20s and 30s and 40s at a time where segregation was uh, in full effect. And so he was around a community of uh, queer folks, sex workers, but they were all black (laughs) because they were segregated. Um, The only time there was interaction, according to Countess, is when, you know, white patrons looking for sex (laughs) came over into the black neighborhood and then, you know, they would get robbed of their money. (laughs) Uh, by uh, some of the the clever um, uh, creepers is what he uh, the creepers yeah I love that term (laughs) creep in and steal the wallet and creep (laughs) back out yes Um, so yeah it's 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 a fascinating um, history and it's not simplistic at all you know people Mm -hmm. stay for different reasons and they leave for different reasons you mentioned Charles Chaz Chastity's experience in the church. And that's something that comes up in a number of the interviews, that the church is often another kind of ambiguous space where you might be hearing official homophobia from the pulpit, and yet the choir director's gay and everyone knows it. 
Could you talk a bit about that, the role of that institution in the lives of these men? Oh, the church, the church, the church. Um, it, <laughs> I know it, we only it, have it, about an hour, so it might not be I, long enough to answer the question. Yes. <laughs> so it, too, is a really complicated space for a lot of uh, queer people, and especially for queer Black Southern folks, because no matter what one's relationship to the church is, there is some relationship <laughs> mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. The, the, the church is just a part of the, the cultural fabric that makes up the South, whether that's through, you know, a church literally on every corner or billboards or even um, people's uh, language, the mm. way in which uh, uh, church speak is incorporated into everyday uh, language, whether it's an exasperated Lord have mercy, (laughs) (laughs) or bless a heart. All of those things come from a churched um, way of of living in the world, particularly in the South. And it is a place of so many contradictions, not just around sexuality, but also around class uh, as well. And so based on my experience in the church, it was at once a place of freedom to express uh, my budding homosexuality and my gender expression because I was the only boy in the soprano section mm-hmm. uh, in the church choir. And I could out sing, you know, all the other little girls uh, <laughs> in the, in the soprano section. And I loved the freedom of wearing that robe because as Freddie says, it's like a dress. <laughs> and you can, there is something kind of fabulous about church. Yes. It's, it's, you know, that, that the robe has that, that billowing effect, you know, the excess of sleeves and, and all of that. And through the guise of catching the spirit or just being, you know, happy praising God, you're also, you know, queening out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a sort of tacit acknowledgement of one's gender expression and sexuality, uh, despite the fact that you may be even singing a song that's damning you to hell. <laughs> but but it's, it's, it's the, the vehicle through which you have to express your sexuality that in a paradoxical way affirms your sexuality um that gets played out however in really dramatically different ways depending on the church depending on the community you know there are some churches that some of the men went to that were really uh homophobic and homophobic in ways that were uh explicitly oppressive Mm-hmm. Um, that was damaging psychologically, uh, emotionally. Um, while there were other uh, church experiences that, again, there's tacit acceptance where there's mm-hmm. no there's no commentary about homosexuality or sexuality in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know there were a, a few rare occasions where. Um, Folks went to accepting churches. So it, it runs the gamut. But 
no matter, again, what one's relationship to the church is, there is a relationship, even if someone decides to leave the church. And many of the men did that, you know, when they were old enough to make their own decisions about that, they left the church. Um, but the church didn't leave them. Mm-hmm. I often tell people, you know, I don't go to church, uh, today, but the church, I am so churched, you know, <laughs> I can hear a song and I drop right in on mm-hmm. key. And cause I, because there is something comforting about those songs, about the feeling that you got in church. And the other thing that people have to realize about some uh, people's church experiences, especially young people's church experience in the South, is it's a place where you learn everything about life. It mm. prepares you for public speaking because you have to give an Easter speech or a Christmas speech. Um, it prepares you for uh, your sense of community activism because it is a place where people are mobilized to get out the vote and uh, go and, and do uh, um, peaceful marches. Um, it's the place that prepares you for uh, how to build community because you're going to visit the quote unquote sick and shut in. <laughs> you're going to nursing homes to uh, visit the elderly. So I learned all of those things in church. Mm. Um, I was a part of a uh, a youth organization in church called WIC, which stood for While I Can. And um, that youth organization did so many uh, what we would consider now philanthropic things, like doing car washes to raise money for the homeless, or like I said, you know, visiting folks in the nursing homes and, and so on and so forth. And it was also the place where we got to experiment sexually. Now, the adults didn't know that, (laughs) but (laughs) when we were having those uh, church um, sleepovers, we would have um, sleepovers at the church in the fellowship hall. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, once we were all uh, on on the floor in our our sleeping bags, whatever— in the middle of the night, we were doing all kinds of things. <laughs> you know, we were sneaking around and you know experimenting sexually and so on and so forth. That was happening in the church, in the fellowship hall, and so it's the church is again, it's a complicated uh, space, and people don't realize uh, that it's not just a place of condemnation; it's also a place of affirmation and experimentation and one's experience of all of that complicates their relationship to the institution of the church and one has to make a conscious decision based on their experiences whether or not they want to remain you know as a a part of organized religion or if they want to find uh uh as many of the men that interviewed did a different uh, non-specific form of spirituality mm-hmm. uh, or uh, become agnostic or find uh, non-Western 
practices of of religion and spirituality, which again, many uh, of the men that I interviewed had as well. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'd love to talk about more about this idea of spirituality. I mean, you talked about how you don't go to church anymore, and yet the church is in you. It's in your body. It's in your voice. And there are there are songs, there are church songs in the play, um, and there are also moments of ritual in the play. Yes. Is, is performing this play a kind of spiritual practice for you? It is. And ritual in particular was really important to me to include. And one of my uh, former students, who's now a colleague, Renee um, Alexander Kraft, who's a professor at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, uh, is responsible for all of the rituals in the play. Mm. And they draw from uh, a number of different traditions, not just uh, Judeo-Christian ritual traditions, um, but also uh, Yoruba. Um, And so spirituality for me is really important. And part of my spiritual practice is ritual, uh, whether that is um, prayer or meditation or um, other kinds of uh, symbolic practices. And music is also a form of spiritual practice for me as well. And music that is not just uh, gospel, but, you know, it could be a jazz song, it could be whatever. But um, I often think of the play as a song. Mm. There's a there's a certain uh, there's a certain rhythm that the play has. There is a certain musicality that's drawn from the different dialects of the men uh, that I embody, and then there is actual song um, that begins uh, and really. Uh, ends the play. And so all of that for me is a part of a kind of spiritual practice. I, in one of the uh, notes um, that I uh, wrote for uh, the playwright notes that I wrote for, I think it was the premiere of the play here in Chicago. I talked about, um, the the word uh, of the the men being holy, mm. and what I meant by that is these are testimonies, and I bore witness, and the audience bears witness to these testimonies, and that's one of the things that you do in church: you testify and you bear witness to how you made it over, how you've overcome. And that's what these stories do. They they stand 
the test of time and, you know, sort of harpening back to sort of the first question you asked me um, today was, you know, all these iterations of these stories. Well, that's because they're so substantive. They're so timeless. They're so human that they allow different uh, manifestations in the world. They might be a song. They might be a prayer. They might be uh, a ritual. They lend themselves to all of that. And in that way, uh, it is a part of spirit. It's a part of spirit working. And it's the other reason why I chose Countess Vivian to be a kind of ancestor figure, even before he had passed away in the play. He's always an, an ancestor figure because in African and African diasporic um, religions, the ancestors play a very important role in living. Uh, there's a sense of the, uh, the living, the dead, and the unyet born. And those, we can be in multiple uh, planes of existence all at once. And I sort of wanted the play to capture that as well. Mm. And ritual is one, of, is one way of evoking that uh, sense of nonlinear time as well. Um, there's the moment in the play, for instance, where um, the character uh, e. Patrick is uh, lamenting the fact that he didn't attend the funerals of the people, the the men uh, that he lost to AIDS. And during that scene, he is um, putting uh, cowrie beads that are on his neck around uh, a lit candle. And each time he repeats, I didn't make it to Reggie's funeral, he takes off... Uh, one of the necklaces of cowrie beads and places it around a candle. And it's uh, done four times. And he places them around the candle such that it uh, resembles a cross. Mm. And after, at the end of that scene, he blows out the candle and he folds up the uh, daishiki on which the candle and the um, uh, necklaces are placed in the same way that you would see a soldier or soldiers uh, or people in the armed forces folding up an American flag that it was just draped over the casket of a fallen soldier. Mm. Uh, and he lifts the, the lid of the trunk and places the the daishiki with the candle and the necklaces inside and closes the lid as if it's closing the lid on a casket. So all of those rituals are vitally important uh, to me to evoke my own sense of spirituality, but also to evoke the sense of spirituality that uh, is a part of the African and African-American experience. Hmm. 
I'd love for you to talk a bit more about how you actually embodied these men on stage. And for example, um, you you're, you specify with each of these characters what kind of accent they have. You know, where is it a North Carolina accent? Is it a Georgia accent? Is it a, a gruff voice? Is it a very smooth voice? So how did you differentiate all of these different, you know, uh, sub accents of the Southern accent? And, and how did you physically embody these men? On stage, are you going for a kind of you know documentary realism or or something more imaginative or or yeah? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I'll try to give the short version. Sure. <laughs> uh, answer to this. Um, so, again, one of the reasons why I knew that uh, these oral histories uh, needed to live off the page is I knew that I couldn't capture the wonderful, beautiful. Uh, vocal musicality of these dialects. Mm -hmm. And when I started uh, doing the dramaturgy for the the stage reading before even the play, I decided that I would focus on the notion of voice. And in that version, in the stage reading version, I would play a clip from the actual interview so that the audience heard the the person speaking in their own voice before I even started to perform them. And remember, I'm in, in the stage reading version, I'm just sitting on a stool with the music stand, so I'm not fully embodying them. I'm really focusing on voice. And I listened to those tapes over and over and over and over and over again so that I could really lean into uh, the musicality of dialect and the verbal tics. So, for instance, Michael, who's from North Carolina, has a very distinctive sort of nasally uh, but very precise way of speaking and the verbal tick of saying or whatever. So that um, when he when he spoke, it's, it sounded like someone who's trying to be over-articulate, but failing miserably mm. <laughs> because they also have this tick. So Michael sounds a little bit uh, like this. So my mother and my father always knew that I was guy or whatever. <laughs> so um, it was just fascinating to me. Um, and then uh, you had someone like Freddie, who uh, has a, a soft uh, middle Georgian accent, but also affected in a way that is distinctive. So uh, Freddie sounded a little bit like when I was in sixth grade. Uh, some boys were bothering me and the teacher kept us after school. So there's these, it's kind of a staccato to mm -hmm. it, but it's, but it's soft and it's also still very Southern. And that's distinct from Duncan, who also has a, a staccato uh, a speech pattern, but has a very uh, deep and resonant and also affected um, way of speaking. So Duncan sounds a little like, eh, honey, when the 
church is 200 people, that's your immediate family. Yeah. And so I really spent time just listening um, to the original interviews, but also remember that I still have relationships with the men. So I interacted with them uh, even uh, after the the interviews. And so I got a chance to study their mannerisms, which all came in handy when I actually had to fully embody them. And each director handled those embodiments differently. Some wanted them to be um, sort of exaggerated, even more to heighten them. Uh, While one director uh, went in a totally different direction and didn't want there to be any sort of literal um, embodiment of the characters. It was more symbolic uh, because that director, which was Daniel, was my first director, Daniel Alexander Jones, uh, was working uh, within the theatrical jazz aesthetic, which is all about improvisation and uh, breath and um, simultaneous truths and so on and so forth. So it was very, it was highly stylized and symbolic, uh, but never literal. And then uh, the third director uh, wanted to do a lot of sort of um, a mix of uh, sort of literal embodiment mixed in with with some things that were just kind of uh, made up. And so it, it was interesting for me working with a director since I was the oral historian, the playwright, ethnographer, and actor, and having to take direction uh, from a director and sometimes having to push back because dramaturgically the direction didn't make sense with what I knew was true to the person. Um, so it was, it was quite a negotiation and a process. But I would say more than anything, voice is what I uh, focused on uh, more than anything <laughs> to the point where all of all the men, except for Countess Vivian, have uh, seen me perform them. <laughs> and they say, oh, my God, you perform me better than I perform myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. I'd love to ask you about how different audiences have reacted to this play. You've now performed it both inside the South, outside the South. You performed it in Chicago. You performed it in academic settings, in, in non-academic settings. So so how does what's the kind of range of audience reactions to this material? Well, you know, it's interesting. We, you know, we were talking about church uh, a few minutes ago. Whenever there's been a mostly Black gay audience, we're having church. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because there's lots of... Uh, uh, call and response, you know, people, you know, because they're they're seeing their experience uh, represented on stage. I think some of the more poignant responses I've received have been from white people, mm. and not and not gay ones. Um, it's a little bit talking out of school, but I don't care. Go ahead. Um, in 2011, when Signature Theater in Arlington agreed to uh, produce the play, there was some trepidation about doing so. A, because their audience 
uh, skewed, older, white, suburban. Uh, and it, it, they had never done a quote-unquote black show. Mm. Uh, and so they, they didn't offer the show as a part of the regular season. It was uh, offered as a part of, you know, an extra thing that you could buy as a part of your, for the, for the ticket holders. And so it was kind of like them setting it up <laughs> to fail because of their own distrust of their own audience. Mm-hmm. The beautiful thing that happened is people did come see the show. And these were older, white women, men, who wrote to the theater and said, bring more shows like this here. Uh, This helped me understand my child better. Mm. This helped me understand how race and religion works in the South. Um, And for me, that was so moving and really um, suggested that you can never uh, over-determine how an audience is going to respond to a show, ever. Uh, Because everybody brings to that experience their their whole life experience. And so they're watching it through the lens of their own, their own lives. And even if they're watching the representation of people that is far, as far from them as possible, they're still watching a human experience unfold on stage. And so some of the themes that run throughout the play, such as one's reconciliation with their sexuality and their spirituality or one's relationship with their parents or one's desire to be loved and accepted. Those aren't necessarily things that are specific to Black gay men from the South. Those are human experiences. And once once people tap into that, it touches them in a way that connects them to what they're seeing. And so I stopped trying to anticipate how an audience was going to respond to the show because it was all over the place. And it didn't matter if it was in the South or in the North or even in the West, because I did the show in LA. Um, People have been moved by the stories, they've laughed because some of the stories are hilarious, mm-hmm. as you know. Um, and they've learned things, you know, particularly from uh, Countess Vivian's stories about New Orleans in the 30s and 40s. Um, and they learned something about the playwright slash performer uh, that they may not have known. You know, I think when EPJ walks out on stage for the first time, uh, directly addressing the audience, people don't know where that's going to go. And they certainly don't know that they're going to learn more and more about the playwright slash performer as the play um, goes along. But 
they do. And I think that that's something that's not often experienced in the theater uh, as well. Uh, you know, we certainly have a long tradition of solo performance uh, and queer solo performance. Uh, but again, going back to um, the the pressure that I got from producers to include my own story, I think ultimately they were right because you get to understand a, why I wanted to tell these men's stories, but also it makes sense then why I would tell my own mm. and the and the relationship between my story and theirs, I, I think, um, is yeah, an interesting one. I would agree. I would I, I think that was a, a really strong decision to include some of your own personal narrative in there as well. Yeah. As, uh, again, as much as I didn't want to. Sure. <laughs> sometimes, we, I, sometimes when we hear the right idea, we need we need to hear it a couple of times before it sinks in, right? Yes, absolutely. Finally, I'd like to ask you, what's next for Sweet Tea? Is this something you, you, you'd like to continue performing once it's possible to perform things live again? No. <laughs> it isn't. And I tell you why. I've been performing a version of this show since 2006. Mm. And so I, I really do want to move on to something else. You know, it, it's now a film, a uh, documentary film called Making Sweet Tea, which we just signed a uh, contract with a distributor, Random Media. So hopefully it'll be available on different platforms um, this summer. Uh, and I think the, the film gives an even different perspective than the play uh, does. But I think for me, as the oral historian, the ethnographer, the playwright, the actor, um, it's time for me to uh, give the gift to others. And so what it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see other people produce the play. So I'll be watching others play me, play others. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, talk about meta. Uh, and I, I, I'm just going to lean into that and, and enjoy it. And I, I think that I have, I've done what I needed to do. Uh, it's been one of the most uh, impactful um, experiences of my life to have been gifted these stories from everyday folk who are extraordinary in their own way um, and to lift it their voices. And so now I think it's time for me to, again, recede into the background mm. and let others um, take these stories and run with them. Uh, and I cannot wait. I really am interested <laughs> in, in seeing uh, a production of the show that doesn't include me. It includes me, but not me. Not physically. as a performer. Yeah. Not as a performer. Yeah. Well, I would certainly love to see that as well. Uh, e. Patrick Johnson, it's been such a pleasure to have you on new books and performing arts. I, I loved the play so much and I've really enjoyed getting to talk with you. Thank you so much. And I'll come back anytime. 